All right, everybody. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with us. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 for, for tonight, verses 1 through 17. We may not make it all the way to the end of our text, but if we do, that, that'd be great. The theme for tonight is really uh, how to put sin to death, and certainly very practical as, as far as Paul really bringing this down to our everyday life. Colossians chapter 3, we'll begin in just a minute. I want to say just a word about the very end of chapter 2 from last week to sort of segue into uh, what we would be discussing today. Verses 1 through 4 of Colossians 3, that first paragraph, is sort of the foundation and the motivation for what is to come. And then verses 5 through 11 are really the putting off or putting sin to death. And then verses 12 and 17 is sort of putting on the new self in Christ. That's a little oversimplified, but that gives you a general sense of kind of how this uh, passage is structured. And so, um, Scott, could you open us in prayer and then we'll, we'll jump in? Sure. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we're, we're thankful uh, once again to come and to gather here in the gym as a church family. It's a joy and a privilege to do this, and uh, just thankful for these times together. And, and again, uh, thankful for all the work that goes in behind the scenes, all the, uh, the service, the humble service, uh, so many at our church. And uh, as we come to this incredibly practical passage today, I pray you'd help us to be faithful to your word. And I do pray that all of us would sort of come away tonight uh, hating our sin just a little bit more. Uh, come away from tonight uh, desiring to put sin to death uh, more fully, to be more vigilant in our fight against sin, but also help us to, to come away from tonight uh, not only putting off things, but putting on uh, sort of uh, the new, new things, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. I pray that uh, we would be strengthened tonight through this incredibly practical passage, and uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I know this is last week's passage, but Greg, would you mind reading the, la- the end of 2, 16 to 23, just so we can refresh ourselves with that? Yeah, and be happy to. All right, chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So just to sort of recap some things from last week, we talked about legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. And one of the things that we talked about last week, and kind of one of the big ideas here is, if all you have to try to grow spiritually is man-made rules that are not actually even biblical, they're not grounded and based in the person of Christ and in the gospel. So you, you don't have that. You don't have the gospel. You don't have Jesus as the central motivator. You just have rules made by man to try to change your life. What you're going to find is you're not actually going to experience real transformation. 
Uh, without Christ, we simply reorganize our sin. We don't eliminate it. So, so just hear that really clearly. Someone who says, okay, maybe I'm given, I've given myself to my appetites. Maybe it's gluttony. Maybe it's drunkenness. Maybe it's a drug habit or something like that. A very obvious example of, of sin. And they say, well, I, I want to solve that problem. Well, they invent a bunch of rules for themselves, and they treat their bodies with great severity. Remember asceticism? They're treating their bodies with kind of false humility and a severe treatment of the body. At the end of the day, if they conquer alcoholism, and they conquer a drug habit, and they conquer gluttony, if they aren't doing it with Jesus' help, and they aren't doing it based in the gospel, they're going to find that they have just traded that idol for another idol. The idol is called self-righteous religious pride. And that's why it says here in verse 18 that the people who are doing these things are puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. And in verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, a false, humble, abased treatment of the body, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The Pharisees curtailed a lot of outward sins, and yet, because they trusted in themselves that they were righteous, they treated other people with contempt. And so, apart from Jesus, the whole world, all it can do is basically tell you, you can simply trade one idol for another. You can jury-rig the idols of your heart. You can, okay, if this is the idol that you're living for, just move that out of the way and replace it with a different idol. And before you know it, you're enslaved to a whole new God or set of gods. Only the gospel sets us free from all false idols and false saviors and false religions and gives us the only one who can forgive and empower a truly godly life. Not a perfect life yet in this world, but a truly godly life. And that's Jesus. And so Paul's given us the religious, the, the, the self-made religion answer to sin, which is no answer. It doesn't actually subdue the flesh. And then chapter 3, he's going to give us the positive answer. How do we actually not just rearrange our sins, but actually begin to uproot our idols and replace them with, with God himself? So, um, Scott, could you read the first four verses of our chapter? Sure. Colossians 3, starting in verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Greg, you want to start to unpack that? Yeah, so we mentioned some of this last week, um, so some of this will be a little bit review, maybe some, some new thoughts here. Uh, remember... Verse 1, he says, if you've been raised with Christ. I mean, you could also translate that since then, you've been raised with Christ. He's talking to believers here, and he's like making a point. It's like, well, if you've been raised with him, which you have, where are you? Or um, what are you to do? You're to seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And because that's where Jesus is, that's where we want to set our minds. We want to be Christ-focused. We want to be... Um, all about Jesus in our lives. And so if we're going to do that, we need to focus on Jesus where he is. He's at God's right hand, which is a place of absolute authority, absolute power over everything. Remember, Great Commission, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Um, Paul says in Ephesians that he's been seated at the right hand of God far above all 
rule and power and dominion and rulers and authorities and all of that and above every name that's named. So when we think about focusing on Jesus, we need to think our Savior has died, risen, ascended. He is at a place of absolute power and authority over the entire universe. And that has to affect our view of him. It has to affect our approach when we pray, when we read, when we talk. It's got to shape everything about the Christian life. So we seek the things that are above, the things of Jesus, because that's where Jesus is. He says, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. And there's kind of a contrast here um, because you think of earth as like, in, in this sense, as kind of the opposite of Jesus. It's, it's, it's a, a life without God, a life without Christ versus a life spent pursuing Christ and seeking to know Christ. And so if, if we're focused on earthly things, as Paul would say here, that likely means we're focused on a life that has no reference to God or to Christ. And that's actually the essence of ungodliness. It's not that you're necessarily doing bad things, you though that's part of it, to be ungodly means you live as though God isn't there. You live without reference to God in your decisions and in your planning and in your desiring and in how you you treat people. And so Paul is like, listen, you have new life in Jesus. That's what he says, verse three, you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter two. There's a lot of similarities between Colossians and Ephesians, um, some overlap of, of things that Paul talks about. So when he says you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, that means in some way you, you have a vital connection to Jesus who's in heaven. And so your new spiritual life as a believer is drawing life from Christ in heaven. Because that's what Paul said in Ephesians. You've been raised with him, seated with him in the heavenly places. We've been made alive together with Christ. And so our life is hidden with him. It's secure in him and that's why he says, verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Why? Because the source of your life is going to come and he's going to draw you to himself and what you've had by faith and by an inner experience. You know what it is if you're born again to have new spiritual life, new spiritual appetites. One day we're going to be with him and all that we have tasted of here on this earth, we will get in the fullest expression then. Yeah, I just think... Verse 2, I love verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And a great question that I think Sinclair Ferguson would ask it of new people that were being hired at his church would be, uh, where do you go when your mind is free? Like, what do you think on when your mind is free? It's a great question. It's an index of the affections, he said. And just, it's a great question for us. Like, where, have, where has my mind drifted when my mind has been free today? And we need to train, I think, ourselves to, to think more on eternal things, more consistently. And Jab Packer, in his book, Knowing God, has a very helpful, practical thing. He, he gives like six things that you, you say to yourself over and over again. I'll, I'll give you four of those. He says, uh, I'm a child of God. Number one, God is my father. So we, we've been adopted by God. We, we, we just marinate on that. Heaven is my home and every day is one day nearer. And he just said, take those truths and just say them to yourself over and over. He said, anytime your mind is free, sort of drift to those, those realities. Like if you're waiting on the bus first thing in the morning, last thing at night, you just take these truths. It helps you think about heavenly things. And then another guy was just taking, uh, talking about our conversations with, with one another ought to stimulate us to think about things that are above. And last time I mentioned Jerry Edgar, I mean, every time you have a conversation, almost, he's, he's going to lift you up to, to things above. He's going to get you excited about heaven. But I, I remember, this was years ago, uh, maybe four years ago, one of the hardest things about this church is saying goodbye to people. And I remember when Gage left for the first time, uh, just feeling sad. You, you know, we we're going to have to say goodbye to Gage, uh, going to miss him. And we were talking about this at book club. And Josh Krause said something. I, I'm not going to get everything right, but this is four years ago. But I remember the basic idea of what, what Josh said to me that night. He said, 
or he said to everybody, he just said, you know, our relationship with Gage is eternal because he's a, he's a brother in Christ. So it's never going to be apart. We're just going to grow and grow. Yes, we're, this is a temporary thing. We're going to say goodbye to him, but this relationship is eternal. It's going to keep going forever. I thought, is this a great way just to practically to lift us up to, to eternal things? We should just want to do this amongst each other to help us. Uh, so we, we make deliberate thoughts of I'm a child of God. We do those things, but we also want to encourage each other like a Jerry, Josh Krause, and, and lift us up to things above. Yeah, if, if you know that you're going to be not just but going on vacation might not be a good illustration. Let's say you're, you, you know you're going to be moving to another country. You're going to be moving to another country for a period of years. If you know that going into, if, say you've got a few months ready and you know I'm going to spend the next several years maybe traveling or maybe in school in another country, uh, you're, you're going to have that country on your mind before you go. You're going to start looking up stuff online about the country. You're going to start getting to know cultural customs, the kind of food that they eat, the religious views of the people in the culture, where are they in terms of their relationship with Christ. You're going to have all these different things you're going to be thinking about for months leading up. I think with Erica, before your trip, Erica, you're just like leading up to it, how can you not think about where you're going? And how can you not study the culture and understand the people as you're going? Because I know I'm going to be there, so I'm going to already get my mind and heart there now while I'm not there yet. And similarly, my life is right now hidden with Christ in God. Right now, it is true, in Christ, my life is there in heaven. But I'm not there physically right at this moment, but I know my eternity is with Christ. And so how much more should we be getting to know the person that we're going to spend eternity with? Um, just, I know Jesus is all over the Bible. Right? I mean, you, you, get, you get glimpses of his character everywhere. But in particular, we have four Gospels. And I'll just tell you, as, as, I, as years go by as a Christian, the Gospels are some of the books I love to read the most in the whole Bible. Now, I love all the Bible, but there's something about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that I just can't get enough of seeing Jesus walking around, talking, interacting with people. If you know, I'm going to meet him, like, really, in real time and space. I'm going to make eye contact with this person. I don't want it to be a complete surprise about who he is. I want to get to know him. And we have four incredible gospels that tell us so much about the person of Jesus, and we could just soak in those and, and get our minds set on things above where Christ is uh, seated at the right hand of God. Where our, where our treasure is, where our imagination often is, our heart is also. We, 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 get, we get ourselves invested, in, and that's where we begin to, uh, to think. I think drawing from uh, what you said, it's, it's not a, a pleasant thought per se, but it's something I think needs to be said. If we don't know him and are familiar with him now, in this life, then will we meet him with joy when he comes? And I think the answer would be no. I mean, like, if, if, if Jesus is not our life now, he's not going to be our life then. Um, I mean, that should be obvious to say that. Um, and so, you know, we need to examine our hearts. We need to encourage those we come in contact with who we know are not believers um, to examine their hearts um, in light of this truth. Like, if he is not our life now, he won't be our life then. Um, and so the, I think the, the church in America in large, it's easy, you know, to, to, to say this, but it is true, especially in more conservative evangelicalism, Southern Baptist realm, we, we've had the, the tendency to say you can be a believer but never really love Jesus, never really live for Jesus, never really see him as your life. Um, when the Bible presents a completely different picture. Um, again, not, not perfectly, but if you're a believer, like you're going to see things differently. You're going to feel differently. You're going to think differently. You're going to desire and plan your life differently because now, as, as Paul says in uh, 1, 2 Corinthians, 
We, we have been awakened to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And when we behold his glory, we want more of that. We're consumed with that. Like that's the rest of life is we want to know more of Jesus. We got to have more of Jesus. And if that's not us, at least in some basic way now, then there's nothing to look forward to when he comes back. Um, and so we need to press that on people that we come in contact with because there's a lot of folks deceived into thinking, you know, like we've said, oh, I just made a decision at some point, but I have no love for Jesus, no desire for the word, no hatred of sin, no brokenness over sin, no repentance over sin. If Jesus is not our life now, he won't be then. So let's make sure we keep that at the forefront. Yeah, no, I just think a few, one brief thing would be, like, we will appear with him in glory. Like, that's an extraordinary phrase. I remember, like, Ferguson just, just said it, like, with, like, amazement in his voice when he said that. Another passage said, what is, what's that going to involve? A resurrected body like Jesus will have a, a moral likeness to Jesus that is finally complete. No more death, no, no more pain. And I just think, thinking some of those basic truths about what is to come, uh, I mean, it's the John Newton illustration of the, the guy who's going to inherit, you know, the millions of dollars, and he's complaining. You think he's a fool if he's complaining about his carriage being broken, if, if he's getting this inheritance. Like, if somebody came tonight and said, you're inheriting $5 million, it would change us tonight. I mean, there'd be joy tonight. But this, this is so much better. This glory that is to come is so much better. If we, I just think we don't think about it as much as we should. If we did, we would be like Jerry Eddard. All of us would be beaming with joy if we, if we really did think more, more on this. I mean, what an amazing thing that is to come with Christ. Like, we get to know him in the Gospels. We want to see him. We're going to be with him, with a resurrected body. No more death, no more pain with all the saints. I mean, this should just fill us with excitement, anticipation. That's great. And we often talk about the Great Awakening in the 1730s and 40s in the colonies and also some in Europe. But you had Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield were huge human means of that happening. And God used many, many different pastors in different churches during that time. But Jonathan Edwards, basically, his, his basic idea was, my goal when I am talking to my church, he said, was to get all of us to believe what we believe. He said, hell is something we believe in a doctrinal statement. But how many of us stay up at night unable to sleep because we know people who are going to go there if they don't know Jesus first? We, we believe it, but we don't fully believe it. Our, our, you know, our emotions correspond to what we believe, right? If, if our child is in trouble, you're going to have emotions that automatically respond to that because you really believe it and care about what's going on. But when it comes to eternal things... It can so often, I've heard people say, it's like, it's, it's like you're listening to the radio rather than watching the, the video. The video is so vivid, but the radio is a little more easy to get sidetracked. We, we need to make this thing high definition. How do we make our, what we believe vivid? And, and the Great Awakening, what really happened was you had, so just real quick, awakening is what happens to a non-Christian when they awake, they, they wake up to their state as a lost person who desperately needs salvation. It's a great awakening. And they, they desperately see that they need Jesus. And hell becomes real. Heaven becomes real. Jesus becomes real, not just some historical character, but something that is a matter of life and death, a person who matters. Revival is when someone who's already a Christian is revived. They, they, they're, they're refreshed and renewed in their walk with the Lord. And those two things happen normally simultaneously in, the, in church history. Unbelievers are awakened and believers are revived. And all that's happening is what believers already know is true becomes vividly real in their minds, becomes vividly real in their hearts. Colossians 3 is telling us very little we don't know, probably. Most of us in this room, we know these things. But the problem for me is it so often is not real and vivid to me. It is so often not compelling to me, captivating to my affections. When you talk about, oh, you know, the economy is struggling right now. My affections suddenly start caring because it affects my life and my standard of living. I, my emotions are attached to those things. 
But when it comes to Jesus, so often he can start to feel distant in moments as a Christian. And so the fight is the fight to see him clearly. And the way that happens is through things like tonight where we talk about these things with one another. But Paul's saying, if we could vividly understand what has already happened in Christ, putting sin to death would be the most natural thing you can possibly imagine. And just to give an argument for that, look back at chapter 2. Just reread these wonderful verses. Verse 11 of chapter 2. In him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I know some of you have heard this, but Spurgeon tells the illustration. He said, imagine I have a brother who was brutally murdered, you know, living in the London area at the time, in the 1860s or so. Imagine I have a brother who was brutally murdered. And they actually find the very weapon that was used to kill my brother. It was this, this knife, this awful instrument of death. And he said, imagine if you came to my house and I had the knife put in a place of prestigious honor in my home. He said, you would immediately think that either I was a co-conspirator in my brother's death, that I did not love my brother at all, or that something was truly wrong with, with me as a person. And he said, oh, believer, how can we love the sin that was responsible for the death and the murder of our dearly loved Savior? The, the very fact that we understand that sin is what's responsible for Jesus' death should be the primary instrument we use to put our sin to death. My sin killed Jesus. I love Jesus for what he did for me. Therefore, I must hate my sin. That is not trading one idol for another. That's not Pharisaism. It's not legalism, mysticism, asceticism. It is Christ-centered obedience. It's saying, sin killed Jesus. I must kill my sin by God's grace and by God's help. Thoughts on, on that as we move into verse 5? Well, it's, it's not an option. I mean, Paul talks about this in Romans as one of the evidences that you're a child of God. Um, because we, we focus on, you know, put, um, you're not under obligation to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you'll die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. Um, the immediately following that, he says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So how do you know you're being led by the Spirit of God? You're fighting your sin and putting it to death. It's one of the chief evidences um, of a genuine believer. Again, not a perfect fight. I mean, we stumble and fall, we, we fail, we, we lose battles, but we keep fighting. And we're determined to keep on fighting until the very end. And so Paul here doesn't offer this as a suggestion, as something you might want to do years down the road when you really get serious for Jesus. This is basic Christianity right here. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, and here's the thing. He doesn't say things that you might do. When he talks about what's earthly in you, it literally is like uh, your earthly members. So he, what, this list of things that he has in verse 5 is what is in every single one of us. As I was thinking through this this week and even today, this hit me in a new way. Because usually we think, well, these are things I've got to avoid. And Paul says, this is already in you. It's in me. Like that is humbling. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness or greed. 
I don't know if it's just covetousness or all of that is idolatry. But the point is, those things are already there. They're already there. Wanting to be fed, wanting to be unleashed, wanting to be gratified. And so we, we don't need to, to, to look at other people and be like, well, I know other people do that. Like, that is in us. That is in you right now. That is in me right now. And if that one fact does not humble us, then we, we, we're not seeing this for what it is. Because of verse 6, and we're not, not going there totally yet, but he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Not on account of what other people do. On account of this evil that is within us. That is what brings God's wrath to the world. And that goes back to what Mark was saying. How desperately we need a Savior. How desperately we need Jesus in this. But that's what we got to fight. That's what we got to fight. You want to know what sin do you need to fight today? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. That's what you have to fight today, tomorrow. That's what I have to fight today and tomorrow. Yeah, just, just a few big things I think about uh, when thinking about fighting sin. It ties in exactly what both Mark and Greg are saying. But I think number one is uh, J.C. Ryle said, He who would make great strides in holiness must first consider the greatness of sin. Uh, another guy just said, sin is so much profounder a problem than we fully appreciate. I just think we can, we can get, get into coasting where we just think, oh, I've got this sin problem down. But no, no you don't have it down. I think John Newton said, my heart is like a country half subdued. Daily uh, insurrections are happening every day in my heart. And he, he talked about Mr. Self, the sin of pride. He said, it seems to be mixing in with everything I do. Like, I mean, just sin is way deeper in us, I think, than we realize. So we, we need to consider the greatness of sin. Number two, we, need, we should be eager uh, to get rid of sinful behavior, just like Mark, you're, you're saying, like when the, when the cross is central in our lives, it's like why would I ever fool around with sin? When the cross is there, we, we want to be eager to get rid of these things. Number three, we are personally responsible to put sin to death. It will not simply vanish on its own accord. That's what Sinclair Ferguson says. Yes, we're utterly reliant upon the Lord to help us, to enable us, but we are responsible. Everybody in here is responsible to put their own sins to death. Number four, the Christian deals ruthlessly with with, with, with these things. Ferguson says. They had that theology, name it and claim it. He said, no, I want to come out with a new one. Name it and slay it. Name it and slay it. Name the sin, be specific, and kill it. And he talks about in his book, Devoted to God, which maybe Jose and I were the only two that really <laughs> enjoyed that book. But in Devoted to God, I mean, he is intense. He's, he's saying, like, put the knife to the throat of sin. Put it to the heart of sin. I mean, he's t- talking very graphically, and that's how we need to be. John Owen, like, put your, put your foot on the, the throat of it and, and, and crush the, the sins. We want to deal violently with sin. And then the, the fifth one I, I would say, which I've said to, to, to my guys many times, go on the offensive against sin, which comes back to, to George Mueller, which there'll be a question about this later. But Mueller would just say that the first great and primary importance, which I have to attend every day, is to get my soul happy in the Lord. How, how did this tie in w- with uh, fighting sin? Well, Matthew Henry said, the joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hooks. And this is the illustration that, I, that I've used with, with the guys. Uh, our grandmother, my dad's mom, we called her Grammy uh, growing up. We go see her. Uh, Massachusetts almost every summer, and, and Grammy loved to eat. She loved to cook, and she wanted to make sure that everybody was eating and eating well. I mean, she'd load, load your plate. I mean, I have memories of my dad saying, like, no more, whatever spaghetti, <laughs> and she's just piling this stuff on. So she, she always wanted everybody to eat. She made her own, like, uh, hot fudge sundae stuff. I mean, she just was big on food. But we'd always have July 4th stuff there, and uh, there'd be lots of food involved July 4th, but it would be a parade we'd go to. But this, this particular day that I remember, we had a ton of food for breakfast. I was stuffed. We go to this July 4th thing. We get in the, in the line getting ready for the parade, and somebody had donuts, 
in front of us. And I honestly, I couldn't even look at these donuts. It was making me sick to my, I couldn't smell it, didn't want to see it, didn't want anything to do with it. You see, I was satisfied with the breakfast I had. The illustration would be, if we're satisfied, if we have joy in God, this temptation will not tempt me at all because I'm filled with the joy of the Lord. So we want to, we want to go on the offensive against sin. We want to, we want to stir our affections for Jesus early and often. I think this will help us tremendously. And these are just big picture things against sin. That's good. And I hope this is known to all of us in the room, but sometimes, maybe if you're a new Christian, you have this time of intense joy in the Lord and this great passion for the Lord, and you may start to think, well, I've kind of conquered a lot of my big sins. They're kind of, they seem to be gone. And then what you'll, what you'll realize is six months go by, a year goes by, two years goes by, and they start popping back up all of a sudden. And you think, oh, am I not a Christian? What happened? You know, what's going on? Well, here, here's, here's just the brutal honesty of, of the Bible, especially Romans 7 would be really clear on this, but our flesh never takes a day off. Your sinful nature has never and will never take a day off until the day that you die or the day that Jesus returns and you get a resurrection body. Every single day, John Owen says, every day, either your sin prevails against you or you prevail against your sin. You know, be killing sin or it will be killing you is his famous quote. But that is true. So every day, he says, you've got to deliver blows against your flesh by God's spirit through the means of grace. And if you do not actively oppose your flesh, your flesh will begin to take over your mind and your actions and your words. You will see irritability rise. You will see complaining rise. You will see lustful thoughts rise. You will see prideful thoughts rise. You will see uh, a kind of covetousness towards other people's circumstances in life. You'll be like, I wish I had what they have. All of a sudden, these things will start taking over. It usually starts in the mind. The imagination goes. The, 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 the inward feelings, they begin to go. And then suddenly, actions begin to follow in a very more deliberate way. Every single day, we have a fight on our hand, and we have to, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. And it's not a one-time killing. It is a day-in, day-out, relentless fight against our flesh, because our flesh is not giving up. Our flesh is not taking a vacation. Our flesh is not going to take a day off. We have to actively, by God's grace, standing on the gospel and the identity and, and righteousness of Christ, we've got to slay our sin every single day. And that's what, that's what verse 5 is, is, is pointing at. Piper made a statement that has stuck with me for a very long time um, when, he, when it came to fighting sin and various things like that. And it's specifically on the, the importance of prayer. And in light of what you're saying, life is war. Every day is war. Um, and Piper's quote was, until you know that life is war, you will not know what prayer is for. And what is prayer? It's like the walkie-talkie that we call in, the reinforcements, we call in the airstrike, like we call in to get what we need to fight the battle that we can't fight unless it comes. And so prayer is kind of our way of, uh, our, uh, should be a reflex of reaching out to God for the strength, for even the desire sometimes. I mean, my, my wife and I have talked about this, like the whole time we've been married, like sometimes we know what we should do and we don't want to do it and we have to pray, God, Make me want to do what I should want to do, but don't want to do right now. God is faithful to answer that prayer. Um, Lord, I, I am desiring something I shouldn't desire. Help me desire, not just not desire that, help me desire Christ more. You open up the word, like, like you're saying, like get filled with Jesus. And it's, it's, I think it's okay to use this. Glut yourself on Jesus so that you don't have room for anything else. And in those moments, that's why scripture memory is so important. Like, you know, if you're struck, like the illustration used, if you're struggling with lust, go to the Sermon on the Mount. 
The pure in heart will see God. God, I want to see you. If I give in to this sin, if I, if I nourish this in my thoughts and in my heart, I'm not going to see you as clearly. And there's nothing better than to see God. And so you fight the promise of sin with a greater promise of reward in Christ. Um, and you have to do that sometimes. It seems like multiple times a day. Some, some days are going to, going to feel easier. Some days are going to be gut-wrenchingly hard. Um, but... That it is life is war, and we have to be constantly aware of the fact that God is there ready to help. I mean, what is Hebrews? Was it Hebrews 4? You know, let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace literally for a help that's right on time. God has help and divine resources, strength and new joys and, and just endurance to, to push back against sin so that we can overcome it. Yeah, just a few more, more things that we could probably spend the whole time on verse 5. It's just such a good verse. Uh, one of the, again, Ferguson, it was, he's just so hopeful on this topic. He said, refuse sin, starve it, reject it. Uh, basically, one of the things that John Owen has helped me with is sort of when you, when you give in to sin, he, he says, like, consider what led to that. Like, what, what, what were the circumstances that led to that? And then you want to sort of make war on, or you, you just realize, what, what are these things that led to that sin? And an illustration from Jerry Bridges' life godly man, and he was in his hotel room, he was in Discipline of Grace, he turned on the TV, it was a movie on, he didn't even know what the movie was, he said he was trying to figure out the plot, and all of a sudden there was nudity on the screen, he couldn't believe what he was seeing, but he said, he said, since I have a lustful heart, I continued watching to see if it would happen again, and then he said he didn't trust himself ever again to turn on the TV in the hotel room by himself, you think that's extreme, no, that's not extreme, that's starving your sin, this is what led me to, to sin, I'm not, gonna, I'm not even going to go near that, I don't trust myself, that's an extremely godly man who did this, we starve our sin, we, what led to sin, we, we, we make war on that, and this goes with kind of what you're saying, Mark. Every, every time you say yes to sin, it takes a stronger position in your life. One pastor talked about a football field. You're trying to make yards down the field. And he said every time you give in to sin, it's like the opposition. Sin is making yards against you, and you're, you're wanting to push back on that. And then another one is just, it's, we've talked about this so many times, but on its own, each member loses fire. I mean, it's the, the importance of the local church. Uh, it's, it's the coals. All the coals together are warm. You take one coal out, it just it cools off so, so rapidly. And I think some of the sweetest times, I've mentioned these many times before, but in book club where somebody's struggling with a specific sin and we just come around this guy and we just, we just pray for this guy for help, for strength to get over the sin. And I've seen God answer that in, in, in guys' lives. It is just an amazing thing that the importance of the community to help you, but we're not on our own. We, we've, got, we've got the spirit, but we've got the, the body of believers and we've got to make use of that. I mean, if you think about, we all know Peter's denial, but that night, remember Peter was all confident, I'll die with you, Lord, if it has to come to that. And they're in the garden. Jesus says, watch and pray, what? Lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? That's Jesus' instruction. Jesus goes off and he makes war in that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. He fights in his humanity. He fights, uh, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. What do Peter, James, and John in the inner circle sitting with stones throw from Jesus in Gethsemane, what do they do three times in a row? They fall asleep. So they neglected their quiet time, if you want to say it that way. They neglected their time of prayer with the Lord, which was the time actually pre to prepare them for what was coming. And uh, because of that, what? You fast forward two hours, and Peter is cursing and saying, I've never seen him before. I mean, th if that could happen to P the apostle Peter, it can happen to you and me. So neglecting the times of communion with God can lead to amazing falls uh, that a genuine Christian in a moment can make real Errors, real sinful moments can, can, uh, can, un, uh, can unfold very quickly. Uh, let, let, let me pick back up here. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
Some, you could talk a lot about idolatry. There's an amazing section about what that means for idolatry. Desiring anything more than God is coveting, right? Wanting something more than you should is coveting. That's an idol. So anytime I want something more than Jesus, that thing has become a God in my life. Verse 6, <clears throat> on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, two, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 7. And these you two once walked when you were living in them. Before we become believers, those sins characterize our life in one way or another. Like that's what defines us. It's the, the status bar over us, the banner over us. Um, it's what identifies us is our sin. Once we become believers, once God saves us, sin is still there as we've seen. It's still fighting. It's still trying to gain dominion. It's still trying to gain the mastery. But we have a new master who is Jesus. We have truth because of what Jesus has done to conquer sin and not be defined by sin. Um, this is why, by the way, um, we can never identify ourselves with sin and Christianity at the same time. Like, I'm a gay Christian, a same-sex attracted Christian, which is very popular in a lot of circles today. We can't do that. Why? Because as believers, we're no longer defined by our sin. We're defined by Christ. Again, that doesn't mean sin is gone. It doesn't mean we have nothing to fight, because that's all we've been talking about so far. But it does mean we have a new identity. We have a new label over us, and it's Christ's. It's not sin's anymore. You don't belong to sin. You belong to Jesus. And so we dare not add any sinful adjective to our identity in Christ. We don't say, well, I'm just a, a murderous Christian or an adulterous Christian or a drunk. Like we, we would say that is absurd. And so we don't need to do it with anything, even if it's popular in the culture. Okay, we have to be very, very careful of that. So whatever sins we used to dominate us, if you're a believer, they don't dominate you anymore. Yeah, you may have some long, drawn-out fights, to use the illustration, the battle of the bulge. It's going to do everything it can to try to break through what you have in Christ, but ultimately sin cannot overcome you if you're a believer. Yeah, one pastor just talked about uh, Lazarus. He gave this helpful illustration. Where you remember Lazarus is in the tomb. He's dead. And Jesus comes and says, Lazarus, come forth. And then he comes out and uh, he's bound with the grave clothes. And Jesus says, unbind him and loose him. I picture him sort of just hobbling out there where he's all wrapped up. And they have to unbind all these grave clothes. And he just gave the illustration of, you know, that's us. Spiritually, we, we were dead. Jesus came to our tomb and he called us forth and we come out, but we're still wrapped sort of with these grave clothes, these, this old self, old man. Verse nine, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. There's a sense of which now those are our old grave clothes. We need to put all those things off. We want to put on these, these new, new grave clothes. I mean, new clothes, new life clothes, not new grave clothes, new life clothes. But it's like, that's how, who I once was, but that's not who I am anymore. Like lying, for example, I just mentioned lying. We could go into any of these sins and, and deal with them and you can get convicted on it. But I remember having to study for the Ten Commandments about two years ago about not bearing false witness and just studying that and thinking, some commentators said, we want to speak and love the truth. 
and talking about exaggeration. And it was just one of those convicting things about how, how I think this is, can be a sin that Christians can struggle with, where we will exaggerate things. We will not be just up and up on everything. Like one pastor just said the, the illustration, if somebody calls you and asks you to come to this, this event, and you don't want to go to that event at all, and he said, then you just kind of make all these excuses, and you basically, you're lying to them. He said, because you're afraid to offend them. He said, you've got to forget offending somebody. You have to be truthful. So I just think even just one thing like that, we need to get our, our, our consciences sharpened here on some of these, the positive side. And for me, it was lying. Like, I mean, just how often we can just exaggerate things or not tell the complete truth. We want to be truth tellers. This is part of how we are in Christ. Yeah, I'll get one more, one more thing here. Verse 8, when he says, you must put them all away again. These are things that are in there, in us, that we have to daily deal with. Like today, I have to put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Tomorrow, I'm going to have to do that again. And we all will. And I think it matters to think about it that way because, again, a very common way of thinking about the Christian life is, you know, I had an experience at one point and then I never struggled again. That's just, you just traded one, like you said, you traded one sin for another one. Now, instead of a struggle, you've got a form of vicious pride that you're not even aware you have. Um, yeah, you, you, you might gain victory over these things, but they are still there wanting to erupt again. Um, and so we have to be constantly on guard against these things. And guess what? You will fail in this. You're going to have to repent of anger and ask forgiveness from someone whom you lashed out at with in anger. Um, slander. If you find yourself ruining someone's reputation to make yourself look good or for whatever reason, that's something to repent of. Um, and God says, you got to put that away. And just because you deal with it today, okay, I repented of that today. I never need to... No, guess what? You might have dealt with it today. You need to be aware of it tomorrow. I need to be aware of it tomorrow. But I want to give some encouragement in this too. We've talked about, and we did this in Sunday school. Maybe some of you remember this a long time ago as we're teaching through the Bible Doctrine book and teaching through systematic theology. There's the doctrine of progressive sanctification, what the Bible teaches about how we grow in Christ-likeness. Um, we say progressive because it is something we actually progress in. It's something we grow in. Over time, our trend is up. Okay, it's up in the right direction. Yeah, there's going to be downs and all that. But over time, guess what? Your growth in being like Jesus is going to increase. So if, you're, if right now you're at a point where you're like, man, I'm really struggling with anger, or I'm really struggling with lust, or I'm struggling with jealousy or bitterness, keep fighting. Because over time, you will gain victory more and more over these things. This isn't, we don't need to, to live in this defeatist mindset that's just constantly down because of how sinful we are. No, that's the best place to start because then you're going to depend on God. And then the more you depend on God and the more you start fighting over time, you're going to gain more and more victory. It, Which, go ahead. Just, so often we think of it as it's going to be a silver bullet moment mm -hmm. where just God, in a second, just the sin temptations are gone. It almost never looks like that. And the Lord, is, the Lord is sovereign over this process. The Lord wants to teach us things in the process of fighting our sin, not just in waking up one morning and, oh, I'm never going to struggle with that again. No, the Lord is teaching us dependence. He's teaching us humility. He's teaching us desperation for him. He's teaching us how much we need him, how sufficient he is. Over and over, we slip and fall and we get back up. And the Lord is continuing to feed us that grace and teaching us through that process. And just to mention, uh, you mentioned anger and wrath here. It's interesting, you know, put away all anger and wrath and malice. 
we all struggle, at least I think we all struggle with sinful anger at times, right? We all do. In the moments when I give in to sinful anger, I, without meaning to say it, I am saying, you, whoever I'm mad at, you have offended me more than I have offended God. That's what sinful anger is saying. It's saying, I have real reason to be angry at you. You've offended me more than I've offended God. Now, of course, if we stop and think about that, if we actually stop and think, just mention it here, God owes righteous wrath against us. He, he should give us righteous wrath. The fact that Jesus took his wrath, his righteous anger away, is all the ammunition I need to not have sinful anger towards others. Because if I see God has every reason to just wipe me out, and instead Jesus took that place and was wiped out on my behalf on the cross, that is all the ammunition I need to say, if the Lord has been this patient with me, Surely by his grace, I can be a little bit patient with this other person in my life because God has been so forgiving to me, I can be forgiving to someone else. And I think this goes back to something that you guys said uh, earlier tonight, how much we need community. Like, I'm not always going to see when I'm given over to these things. I need somebody to tell me. And I don't always like it in the moment, and you don't always like it in the moment. I'm, I'm very resistant to correction, Okay. Um, my wife could tell you that. Uh, there's a lot of testimony there. Um, I'm trying to get better at it. Um, but I mean, we, sin doesn't like to be exposed. Sin doesn't like to be told that it's sinful and evil and wrong and it's deserving of the wrath of God. And sometimes I need someone to tell me that. I need, like, if, if I have been angry or if I have, um, you know, said something I shouldn't have said and it was obscene, it was evil speech, I need somebody to say, Greg, you know what? that was really inappropriate what you said, or that was not the godliest way to respond. Um, I need that. You need that. We need people to, to speak into our lives and to tell us and to point out sin. Again, we're not, we're not like sin um, detectives, like, you know, a microscope trying to find every little thing. But, you know, when, when someone is in sinful anger, it's obvious, not to the person usually, but to everyone else. And that's what the community does. And it is a loving thing to tell someone, hey, your attitude was sinful when you did that. Like, that's a loving thing to do. That's how we love one another, is to point sin out. Um, and so sometimes I need someone to say, hey, don't tell a lie, like you were saying. Like, that, that was a lie. Don't do that. You need to repent of that. And it's, you know, we don't need to make it such a big deal that we can never talk about these things with one another. It needs to be part of the ongoing process of our fellowship together in the, in the, just in the ebb and flow of life, if, if we do one of these things, hey, that was wrong. You, you need to go say you're sorry and you need to repent before God. Like, and that shouldn't be this earth-shattering thing that happens. Oh my goodness, what in the world? That should be normal part of our Christian fellowship. Yeah, I think we should be quick to confess and quick to, uh, quick to forgive in the, in the Christian church. We're all going to sin against each other in different ways. I hate that. That's just what happens in a church when we still, have, uh, we still fight our flesh. And so we should be quick to confess our sin, apologize, ask for forgiveness, and we should be quick to give that forgiveness and not hold on to a grudge. Yeah, I just say, I know we're getting closer to time, but just the very beginning of verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones. I mean, so often we can rush past that as God's chosen ones, and, pe and people just drill into this. He's taking back to our election. Like, it's 
sovereign choice of our lives and how this is grounding sort of this putting on. Like, why should we be compassionate? Because God has had mercy on us. And Ferguson, again, quoting him, he says, this is the first principle of the gospel, that unless God had set his love upon us long before we turned to him, we would never have come to Christ. He had compassion on us before we showed any interest in trusting him. And there was a pastor named D. James Kennedy, who's in heaven now, but he told this illustration apparently where there, it's a made-up illustration, but there's these five guys who want to rob a bank and D. James Kennedy is talking to them. He's trying to convince them, don't rob this bank, don't rob this bank. And they, they say, no, we want to do this, we want to do this thing. And finally, they're just like, we're going to go do it. And they, they race to their car to get in their car to go rob this bank. And D. James Kennedy runs after them and he tackles one of these guys, wrestles him to the ground, holds him down. The other four get in the car and they race off. And they rob this bank. And in the process, they shoot and kill one of the guards and they, they flee the scene. The police pursue them, catch them all. They're tried and they're convicted and they're all going to be sentenced to the electric chair. And then D. James Kennedy said, this guy who, who didn't, uh, was tackled, can he say that I'm better than the others? No, of course not. He, he was spared because he, he was tackled. His heart was in the robbery just as much as the other four guys. Well, that's a picture of us. We were running our hellbound race and God had mercy upon us, came after us, pursued us, snatched us up, chose us in him and pulled us there. And like, living in light of that truth should produce where we want to put on compassion, hearts, kindness. I just, just connecting that is, he just kind of throws it in there really quickly. But man, there, there's great truth there. Just remembering our adoption, his sovereign choice of us, that should have a powerful impact. Can I give a, out of time. Yeah. a scripture verse with that? Jude, uh, verse 23, says, he's talking about, have, verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire. I think he's talking about believers who are in the grip of sin and temptation. Tackle them. I mean, tackle them. Say, no, I care too much about you to let you do that. Like, there is, there is a holy violence to the Christian life that we need to not be afraid of. Like, we should love each other enough to literally tackle in the street. Could you break a bone? Could you skin some, you know, scrape some stuff off? Yes. But I love that. Like, tackle them. Like, tackle me if you see me going down the path to sin. Don't let me do it. And I pray that I would do the same for you. Like, that, that's how seriously we need to take it. That's, I love that illustration. That is so good. All right, guys, we are going to pray, and then uh, we will get, uh, we'll have a few minutes to, to, uh, as a break, and then we will start our discussion. So let's go ahead and take a second to bow our heads together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, do, we, we want to think often about where we were, the life that we were living, as Paul talks about here, uh, how we were following the course of uh, the prince of the power of the air and the spirit now at work amongst the sons of disobedience, and we were all by nature uh, children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. Uh, by grace we are saved through faith. This is not our own doing. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. And God, I pray that those things would be very real to us as we uh, think about our conversion and the grace that You displayed in our life to bring us to faith in, in you. And I pray now as we discuss these things around these tables that you would be honored, that we would be edified and built up in our faith and encouraged. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.